When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the Deconstructionist Freaking Podcast. We are your hosts. I'm Adam Narlock. And I'm John Williamson. And goodness. And we, <laughs> we are back officially. Oh my gosh. Does it feel good to be back in the saddle? Oh man. Did you see our boy earlier today? We got a comment where uh, one of our listeners was really concerned that we were like, just going to be done. <laughs> like not coming back. Good old Preston price. Yeah. I was like, Oh no, man, we're coming back. We're just, uh, slowly getting back into it. <laughs> he was like, I thought you hung up the microphones. I was like, never, never No way, man. <laughs> it's too we're fun. Out. We can't stop now. Heck yeah. Uh, we love the, <laughs> we're getting a lot of love this week, man. We're, we're getting lots of hugs through the interwebs. It's yeah, it's been nice, man. It's, uh, it's good. It's a good way to, to kick off the new year, I think. How, how, what's the best way we could repay our fans? Maybe giving them some, some good juice today? Oh, my goodness, man. For, for our kickoff month, like the two individuals that we have coming up this month, I mean, it. <laughs> oh, 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 oh. Yeah, yeah. We got some juice, man. One we of got them. Some juice. So, who do we got? One of them today being okay. somebody that's long overdue, and then one of them being a, a warm welcome return once again. Yeah, yeah. So uh, uh, let's let's start obviously with this week's. Um, who do we got this week? This is a guy that we've been we've been interested in getting on the show for the last year. Uh, comes highly recommended, friend of a friend of a friend kind of situation. Oh so who, yeah. Who do we got? So so many people listen to this podcast because. I don't know when it happens, but you wake up one morning or you go to church one Sunday and you open up the good book and you just go, I just don't know about this anymore. I just yeah. don't, I don't know what to do. And one of the best wise guides we have for approaching the Bible with honesty is Dr. Peter freaking ends. Yes. And yes, so this guy, oh, I mean, Oh, go, no, go, go ahead. Yeah, no, yeah. That was Keep just going. me. That was just me doing my usual fanboying moans and groans. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. For those of you that don't know, Adam and I are trying a new. Uh, uh, we're trying to harness the internet and use technology to our advantage so that we don't have to drive across town and record together. And it's uh, we're still trying to figure out how to how to uh, pull this off without being able to actually look at each other and, and get cues that way. So <laughs> it's a it's a new layer of excitement. It is. It is. So, uh, yeah. So, so Peter, Dr. Peter ends, this is another one of those guys that we found on the show that I just, I look at his resume and I'm like, what the heck? Like, I know the guy, the guy, uh, got his PhD from Harvard. Uh, he's the 
Abram S. Clemens, professor of biblical studies at Eastern University uh, in St. David's, Pennsylvania. He's taught undergraduate, seminary, and doctor, uh, doctoral courses at numerous other schools, including Princeton the- Theological Seminary, Harvard Divinity School, and Temple University. Um, I mean, the guy's a regular speaker and writer. Um, you know, uh, you know, basically, like his his primary focus is the ancient setting of the Bible and uh, contemporary Christian faith. Um, he contributes on a regular basis to journals and encyclopedias um, all over the place. He's got a ton of books out there. Um, the one that we really got into his most recent work is a book called The Sin of Certainty. Mm. And uh, um, that one, uh, I remember I actually was reading that one um, or, or listening to it, actually. I got it on audiobook so I could listen to it in the car on the way up to see Pete Rollins up in Cleveland this summer. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's right. I remember that. And then, yeah, so, and then so. shortly, shortly thereafter, you know, here we go. We got to uh, make contact and start a little, little friendship and have him on the show and save this yeah. good juice. This is, this is like cellar-aged juice. Yes, yes. And we recorded this one, what, a, a couple months ago almost now, yep. I think? Th- threw it in the cellar, let it ferment a little bit. Yeah, we've been sitting on it. Now it's all bubbly. I think it's time to unleash it, though. <laughs> it's, bu- it's, all, it's all bubbly and ready. Yeah. Oh, man. So, uh, this, this, yeah, whole, this, I mean, this whole idea that we talk about, though, in this interview, um, just this thing that I think so many of us are just trying to get a beat on, trying to wrap our heads around this whole idea of certainty. And cert, you know, like Brueggemann talks about like certitude and, and, and just having this um, uh, almost you know, false confidence in things that you don't have to have a false confidence about. Right. So I love him for that reason and that reason alone. His approach to scripture is honest and raw and authentic and well-informed and he's responsible. He's one of those guys that if you're deconstructing, but you're trying not to throw the baby out with the bathwater, uh, read, yeah. read everything Peter Enns has ever written, in my opinion, and let it, yeah. let it open your eyes up to new ways of seeing and thinking and questioning and wrestling and deconstructing and reconstructing and all that stuff. Yeah, agreed. I think, um, I think his, I think the, the number one thing that I like about him is, is not only is he taking a, a critical look, um, at specifically scripture, his, his, uh, kind of his emphasis, but he does really good scholarship and he, and he puts in the hard work and, um, he's a credible guy. And, and so it, it's not just, uh, somebody who just, you know, digs in and says, nah, I don't really, I don't really buy this. I don't really, I don't really dig this, but then takes kind of a leap, you know? Like the yes. scholarship is is really solid. He spent a long time really just struggling with with this uh, with this stuff. So, mm. um, really enjoyed his book quite quite a bit. So, and for those of you um, listening right now, um, I'm sure you probably all always listen to the entire episode. I'm sure this is not a point I need to make right now because no <laughs> because nobody would ever not listen to an entire episode. But just in case. You, you know, something, yeah. something comes up and you're listening to this episode, stick this one out to the end because one of the biggest questions we always get, if you are a parent or if you're wondering, maybe I'm, I plan on being a parent or, you know, I have friends that are parents and this comes up in conversation. Like what, 
what do we what do we do with our kids and what we're supposed to teach our kids? This is something that we address with with Dr. Peter Enns, and his answer is, well, you'll just have to listen for yourself. Yeah, it's it's pretty incredible. It's so, all it's awesome. Anything else? No, I think uh, I think we owe it to the people. They've waited uh, what three almost three months now, and it's uh, it's time. Let's uh, let's give it to them. Let's give the people what they want. Let's give them the good juice. Here, without further ado, coming up next is Doctor Peter Freaking Freaking Ends. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Peter Enns, this has uh, been a long time coming. Lots of guest requests and uh, curiosity. It has been. It has been. <laughs> we're, we're, what has taken you guys so long? I'm a to get on this show. Well, I know we communicated, you know, several months back, and it's like uh, John and I have full-time jobs and little kids, and we have no idea how to podcast, and we have no idea how we're even here right now. <laughs> That's true. And, uh, and so this is just a, a joy, man. I mean, you're, you're on our bookshelves. You've informed a lot of the way we think. So welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast. It's going to be a blast to talk about your work and uh, wherever else the conversation goes. Thanks for being yeah, with I, us. I appreciate it, guys. I appreciate it very much. <laughs> well, and, and I'd like to add that we also had to save something good for 2017 because, you know, we don't want to exhaust everything, you know, in the first year. Because <laughs> then we just have to retire and, you know. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so... Uh, so I, I think the, the best way to start um, is to talk a little bit about your, your newest book and how it relates to your previous book. We just got done reading The Sin of Certainty, and um, I, I just think this really this book and the, the work that you did in it just hits the nail on the head in terms of describing uh, the struggle that many of our listeners have had that they're still going through. Um, and I, I think you really uh, approach a lot of those questions uh, throughout the course of the book. So uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about that and, and, and what went into to writing this book. And, and I think there's a lot of personal material in there as well in terms of what you were going through at the time. Yeah, I mean, The Sin of Certainty is, is more personal than, you know, the book before that the, the Bible tells me so. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I remember thinking as I was finishing The Sin of Certainty and writing the acknowledgment section and I said something like, I've been working on this book for like a year and a half. And then I stopped and I said, no, I think I've been working on this book for about 25 years. Oh, man. You just yeah. haven't noticed it. And it, it really, I mean, it was sort of a realization because you see, I'm not a journaler, um, but I, I kept a journal in my early 20s for about a year and a half when I was going through an existential crisis. I was getting married. You know? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, and my wife doesn't listen to podcasts, so we're totally safe here. We can do what we want. <laughs> uh, but no, you know, I was, I was like, you know, this, I was making this major shift in my life, so I started um, journaling, and a lot of these were just basic faith questions, like, what is God? Who is God? What is the Bible? How does all this stuff fit together? And I just, my mind was just churning and churning. And I, I realized that, you know, I went back and looked at that journal, and I'm looking at it, and I'm saying, my questions haven't changed. They've been this for, you know, most of my life, mm. and that was very satisfying to me, because this book's coming out of a deep and genuine place in questioning, you know, what is the nature of faith anyway, you know? And, and I think that's a good question to ask. Yeah, it really is. It's a great question yeah. to ask. Uh, what well, you... We can't avoid it. No, no. And how do you, how do you think that the, uh, 
just the idea of faith and how people wrestle with this question has gotten so um, polyvalent. So, so many different perspectives, you know, there's just so much consternation and frustration and uh, weirdness around this idea of faith. Some people think it means certainty, which is what your book deals a lot with. Um, some people have a little bit more of a mystical approach to it. But uh, any way you look at this, A, it's important, and B, it's very, very difficult to nail down. It's causing people a whole lot of frustration. I mean, I, I, I resonate with a lot of the things you said in this book, even as a kid, knowing how important this is, but really having no idea what it actually is and getting tons of different definitions from tons of different spiritual leaders doesn't help. So... What's what's caused all this? You know, from one simple word, what's co- what do you think has caused all this uh, ambiguity and uh, confusion? Yeah, I mean that's a good question. I, I I wonder if that question would be answered differently, like in different phases of Christian history, even you know, and and different places in the world. But I think for for us in the West, in my opinion, I do talk about this in the book at some length. Uh, I think a, a root of the confusion is how deeply intellectualized the Christian faith has been in the West. Yeah. And so having faith is in a more or less equated with having a sense of, yeah, I pretty much got this nailed down pretty well. Yeah. You know, yeah. intellectually, you get it, and that's what it means to have faith. And, um, you know, I don't think that's what it means, you know, and, and just even biblically speaking, watching biblical writers talk about faith, watching Jesus or Paul or, you know, writers in the Old Testament, it does tend to mean basically, I would say almost all the time, some type of more visceral, trusting, intuitive commitment to God, whether or not you understand, whether or not you see. Wow. And, and I think that's that's a more, that is somewhat mystical. I don't mind using that word at all. It's Maybe it's more contemplative or... Mm-hmm. Something like that, but it's not. It's not an intellectualizing of the faith. There's an intellectual component to the faith, no question about that. I deal with it all the time. I teach. I write. And I, but it's it's not the heart of it. Is not being certain about what you know, because that's always getting shattered if you're just paying attention to life. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it really is. I th- I think that's a great segue into a term that that we really like that you use in the book. Um, that that one of our personal heroes, Richard Rohr, uses a lot. Um, and that's this term transrational. Um, yeah. In what way? In what? What do you mean by transrational for people who aren't who aren't particularly familiar with that term? Yeah, you know what? I actually I only picked up that Roar used that term after I thought I invented it. <laughs> there you go. You did. You did, man. He stole. I'm brilliant. He's, he stole I'm it from brilliant. you. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> we all know that Richard Roar took that from you. We all know that. Yeah. He probably did. You know. Let's just go with that. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully he'll never listen to this podcast. Anyway, um, what I mean is that, you know, faith faith is not totally captured by rational categories, even if it has a rational component. But when I say that, I don't mean that faith is irrational, right? Like it, it's stupid, it's, it's an affront to reason, all that kind of stuff. What I'm saying is that the nature of faith transcends that whole discussion. Right. Of what yeah. makes sense of what doesn't make sense. It actually accesses more of our humanity than that very important part of us, which is our reasoning process. I don't knock that any place in the book. I like reason. I like argumentation. I like that. But at the end of the day, you know, we're, we're talking about God here. And, and to, to say that I, I can capture 
the creator in my mind in such a way that I basically have it right. I just might have to tweak a few things the next few years, then I'll be all right. You know, that, to me, that, that's, that is sinful. That's wrong. Yeah. Right? You're not, not open to the change and to growth and all that sort of stuff. Man. Yeah. There's, there's even a component there that just reminds me of, you know, just, uh, you know, idolatry, you know, how all this stuff in the old Testament about God protecting, uh, the mysterious nature of his uh, being or his character, or his essence or whatever, you know, don't make graven images. You don't even really get to know my name. Um, yeah. and, and we've just kind of been like, no, 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 no. We've got it. We've got it now. Yeah. We've got this. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the shame of the Western, um, I guess, trajectory of the faith. You know, you, you talk to, you know, things that I don't know deeply, but I, I've, I've, you know, talked to enough people and read some things on, say, Orthodox theology and how, you know, even when you say things like God is compassionate, um, that's language that we use based on our experience and what compassionate means. So, you know, when we say on the one hand, a true statement like God is compassionate, that's right away paired with, yeah, but he's not compassionate in any way that we really understand or know. So you can say something that is of positive value, but it has to be taken away at the same breath, lest that word or that concept, like, like you just said, becomes an idol. Like we feel like we, we've now defined God and and I get very nervous, you know, when, you know, confessions of faith go into great detail about exactly what God is like, exactly what God does. And, um, you know, it just does, it doesn't leave room for growth and for conversation and for debate and for discussion, which, which naturally comes up in the life of faith. And, and the absence of that or being told you can't do that is what drives people away from a life of faith, which is to me, tremendously contradictory. Right. Because then it means that your struggle, you know, if you're struggling, your struggle is a problem and you need to stuff it or hide it or reject it or deny it or yeah, man, get over it, fix it. Yeah. All that kind of stuff. And, and I hope that's not the case. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But, you know, you see that in the Bible. You see struggling in the Bible, and, you know, especially in the Old Testament. You don't see it so much in the New. I mean, you do see it with Jesus in the Garden, for example. And and that, but the New Testament is, it it covers a briefer span of time, and it's more triumphal. Mm -hmm. Even though they're suffering, it's more like, okay, Jesus is raised from the dead, and you know what? He's coming back like any minute. Right. That is what the New Testament authors believe. Those who talk about it believe that it's not going to be a thousand years. It might be a thousand minutes or a thousand days, but it's, it's going to come pretty soon. So you have this sort of moment where it's like this anticipation of, you know, the eschaton breaking forth in our midst. But in the Old Testament, you've got, I mean, depending on who you ask and how you figure it, you have about, let's say, a thousand or so years time that's wrapped up in the Old Testament story, where there's plenty of time for things to go wrong. There's plenty of time to say, I think God works like this, but wait a minute. I, I don't see it. I see it nowhere. You know, so you have these confident statements about the nature of God. God's a sovereign king. He directs what happens. And then you have books like Job yeah. or Ecclesiastes or Lament Psalms that say, yeah, excuse me, you know, hand goes up in the back of the room. Yeah, teacher, I don't see this at all. Mm, right. I see the opposite happening, right? So you have that room in the Old Testament, and uh, you, you don't have that kind of room in the New, really. Um, 
which is one reason why I think, you know, Christians really need to access theologically these these trajectories that we find in the Old Testament. We actually have more in common with the Old Testament in some respects than we do with the New, because we've been at this for 2,000 years now. Oh, man. So when we start to talk in, the, in this way and we speak in these terms of, of less certainty and more ambiguity, um, there, there was a quote in your book. There are several quotes that really stood out to me, but one in particular where you say, I don't think knowing or seeking to think correctly about God is wrong. Not at all. The problem is preoccupation with correct thinking, mistaking our thoughts about God with the real thing, and then to base our faith on holding on to that certainty and you go on to, to do this really interesting thing, I think, throughout the book, but taking uh, a look specifically at the, at the words belief and, and the word faith. And, and I think the reason it was interesting, I think, to me, and I would love you to, uh, for you to expand on it a little bit, is the fact that when we start to, to, to speak in these ways, I, I think the, the common reaction, uh, especially from, from people probably more on the fundamentalist side, is to, uh, to attack and, and say, this isn't uh, biblical. What you're saying is not found in scripture. You know, scripture says it, I believe it. And that's, and that's it. But yeah. you actually, you actually take a look at some of the, the, the Hebrew <clears throat> and Greek words and come out with a, a slightly different, you know, meaning or definition. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, which I think is something that, you know, I, I, I don't think there, I can't think of biblical scholars that would disagree with what I'm saying. It's actually pretty run-of-the-mill. But, um, you know, when, for example, um, when when God appears to Abraham in Genesis 15 and promises him children, and Abraham believes, and it was credited to him as righteousness, whatever that means, by the way, but just it's right. the belief part. <laughs> it, it, it wasn't so much—it wasn't like, I believe in the content of something that will happen— it's it's a trust word. It's it's not a what content word. It's a who trust word. He trusts God, and God credited that, that to him as an act of righteousness, an act of doing the right thing. And that's a that's a very big shift, I think, for people. That it's not it's not that Abraham had sort of a um, a list of beliefs or had. Um, uh, you know, uh, a doctrinal statement of some sort, but it was an act of trusting God when he didn't, it wouldn't have made any sense to, right? So it, it is more of an, um, a visceral thing of laying it out there. It's, I think in the book I say it's an all-in word, yeah. trust. It's not, it's not just an intellectual category. It's, it's like a trust fall, you know? There's a reason why they don't call it a belief fall. I can stand there, you know, in, in the conference, the icebreaker game, we're going to do the trust fall, and I can stand there and I can have my arms crossed on my chest, and I can, in all confidence, believe that the person's going to catch me. I mean, I, I, I believe that that's going to happen because they wouldn't let me fall. They're nice people. They don't want a lawsuit. They don't want to mess on the floor. <laughs> you know, they're, they're going to catch me. But when you actually fold your arms forward and then rock back and then just let yourself fall, that's scary. Because at that point, you're actually trusting that person to catch you. 
And, and I think that, that captures, for me at least, what is going on in this word of belief, right? I mean, the word in Hebrew is where we get our word amen from. Hmm. And, and amen is not just a way to end a prayer to let people know it's time to eat. Amen is a trust word. You pray something and say amen, you know, let it be so, we trust you, we, we, we give this to you, and we're not holding on to it anymore. You know, and that's, that is, that's a hard thing to do. And that, that is not something that, well, that transcends our intellectual and analytical abilities. It goes into that most basic human act with even infants trusting their parents and children trusting their parents, unless they're really corrupt parents, obviously. But, you know, that's just what makes us human to trust others. And that's what we have to do with God as well. And that's hard. Yeah, It's easier to believe things than it is to trust God. I've been believing things most of my life. You know, but having to trust God in difficult circumstances, well, that stretches you like you wouldn't believe. Yeah, absolutely. You know, a lot of times I feel like this comes down to, you know, believing things makes you fit very comfortably within a group of people that talk like you, look like you, do things, you know, with you. It's a cultural thing. Believing certain things, you know, gets you you know, tucked into a community, but trusting God is, mm-hmm. is, is something completely different. Right. right. Yeah. Well, one of the, this, right. se- this, this segues into one of my favorite parts of your book, because it's just so germane to the discussion that John and I've been having on this podcast for about a year. Uh, we call it the deconstructionist podcast for a whole bunch of reasons, but, um, yeah. in, in your, uh, in one of your chapters, uh, chapter six, the uh oh chapter. And you talk <laughs> uh-huh. about, you talk about when life happens and the quote is, you know, life happens. And when it does, it wreaks havoc with our neatly arranged thoughts of God, the world and our place in it. And you go into, you know, how people don't like that uh oh feeling and they try to make that uh oh feeling go away. And you, yeah. you say that maybe we should go into it. Maybe we should listen to it. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so when we when we experience events in our lives, and it can be anything, it can be something very big and momentous and maybe tragic, or it can be the simple act of meeting a new friend who comes from another part of the world who doesn't think like you, but are just wonderful and amazing people, and yeah. your whole insider-outsider thing just starts to crumble in front of you. Yeah. You know, um, those experiences, uh, what, what they can do, they, they can disrupt, let's say, our system of thinking about the nature of God and the nature of the world and our place in it. But that can be a very good thing because when we equate God with how we think about God, Hmm. that usually runs into some trouble sooner or later. Um, Because then we start holding on dearly to our thinking about God Hmm. without, you know, giving um, any quarter to, to, to the idea that, well, maybe we have a lot to learn about God. Maybe it isn't like we've got God 90% down and there's about 10% lingering. We'll get to that sooner or later, but basically we know exactly how God works. There, there are stories in the Bible where people said, I know exactly how God's going to work, and then God doesn't. <laughs> and, they, and they freak out too, right? So that you cannot bind God, so to speak, to an action plan. He doesn't, he's not conforming to this pamphlet that you get when you become a Christian. Here's how things <laughs> are going to work out. And these, uh, these uh-oh moments... I think, are opportunities to decide, will you trust or will you fear Mm. at this point? 
And and it, it is a matter of walking. Yeah, but I I just want to go back to the way it was. Mm. Well, you know what? That horse is out of the barn, pal. It ain't gonna happen. Yeah, once you have that, once you have this insight that something's wrong, you can never ever go back, unless you apply so much energy to saying where you are, which can make you a very like it can make you an angry person if you do that. It can make you um, a person who's not much help to others. Mm. You're just more of bunkering down, trying to survive in a, in a in a paradigm that just doesn't work anymore. Man. That is, you know, that one of the things that that brings out to me when I hear you say that is I think one of the hopes that John and I have in this podcast is not only to create a safe place where people can feel like, you know, they can engage and kind of like you're saying, walk through, engage with that. uh Oh, but I think one of the things you're saying is look how much humility it can create in your life. Yeah. If, if you allow yourself to be disrupted, you allow the disruption to actually do its thing to do its work. Right. Right. Humility Without is something knowing you need. where it's going to go. Right. The, and you don't know where it's going to go. And it may, it's some, it may be something you need. No, it is something you need, mm. you know? Um, and, and we all need it, I think, you know, and, and we all, um, have, we, you know, that old saying, it's either Mark Twain or Russo or Homer Simpson, depending on what, <laughs> you call. but you know, um, God created man in his own image. And like gentlemen, we've been returning the favor ever since. Yeah. You know, we're yeah. always creating God in our own image. And I do that. And I know I do that. And I think that's just the risk of an incarnating God where, um, mm. you know, the creator chooses to commune with humanity. We're going to do that. And I think that in and of itself is not, quote, a sin. I think that's just the way people are. I think we, our, we, our conceptions of God are culturally informed. They're informed by our own experiences, by our own communities. That's why there's theological diversity in the world, right? We think about God differently depending on where we are, when we are, who we are, with whom we are, all that kind of stuff. But when we, when we think that that's all that there is, and our tribe is right and other tribes are wrong, well, that's called religion, and that is when you start having problems with other people. That's when you, if you don't kill them, you at least ostracize them and shame them and 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 push them away and and throw them outside of the camp and sort of excommunicate them. Yeah. And um, I, I just, you know, I I'm just sort of done with that. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to live the rest of my life that way. You know, I don't right. or in a community like that. I just I can't deal with it. And all the people said, amen. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, and, and that leads me right, uh, oddly enough, into my next question. So, well, well done, sir. That's <laughs> um, uh, what I do, man. That's what it, I do. Yeah. So it, it, I, I thought this was fascinating. The, the part of the, uh, the part of your book where you kind of talk about, um, uh, talk about that specifically, because uh, recently I, I've been taking a class on, on uh, uh, religious pluralism. And I, I had the, uh, um, the ability to go and, and, uh, visit a Hindu temple recently and had a really fascinating conversation with the temple priest there and just about the nature of God and, and some really interesting Hindu philosophy. And, uh, to be honest, 10 years ago, that's not something I, I probably yeah. would have done. And, you know, and I was, you know, in those days I was probably extraordinarily certain, Oh, like this guy's not part of our club. You know, they right. don't, they don't believe what we believe. So I, I know they're not getting in, you know? Um, yeah. if I have time, I'll enlighten them later. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I'll, I'll win them over, you know? Yeah. 
So I, I love this, uh, not to quote you too, too much, but we want people to go out and get the book, but this, th- there's, there's a section where you, where you talk about that. You, you say, sometimes the biggest challenge to our sense of certainty about God is just getting out of the house once in a while and seeing that we are just people like everyone else with a limited perspective and not the center of the universe. And when we leave our village and interact with real life, flesh and blood people, we see the divine in the world differently. We cannot help but be affected in some somehow and perhaps threatened. And, uh, and, and you tell the story about your conversation with this Jewish colleague that you had, and it really struck home to me just uh, about sometimes all it takes is just getting out of your comfort zone that we as Christians seem hell bent, if you will, on, you know, keeping this bubble around ourselves and not experiencing people of other cultures and, and religions. But then once we do, it kind of, it tends to, if we surround ourselves with a sense of certainty, it, it tends to shatter that bubble pretty quickly, right? Right, right, exactly right. And um, I, I mean, just I had a similar, I guess, experience, uh, and this didn't make it into the book, but on an airplane, um, I have one story in the book that I was on an airplane, but this is a totally different one. But I was sitting there, was, I mean, you know, I was, I might have been a doctoral student, or I might have been teaching. I think I was probably teaching already. And uh, so maybe mid-30s or, or late-30s. And I was on a plane and sitting next to a woman who probably was maybe in her 60s. So probably going to say 30 years older uh, than, than I was. And she asked me what I, was, what I did. And I said, well, you know, I, I, yeah, I teach a seminary. And she said, oh, have you studied other religions? And I sort of looked at her and I thought to myself, what are you, an idiot? I just told you I teach in a seminary. Now, of course I don't. Of course I don't look at other religions. Why would I do that? We're right. Uh-huh. And they're, you yeah. know. But she, she really, she sort of sensed that, and she, she, I remember she was insistent but kind, saying, you have a responsibility to know what others think and what they believe, because you might look at your own faith a little bit differently. And you know, I was listening to her nodding, but you know, inside I was plugging my ears going, la, 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 I do yeah. not hear you, I do not hear you. And because um, that, that is a threat that was very threatening to me to even talk to people who were different. And then, you know, at, at Harvard, where uh, many of my classmates were Jewish, I mean, Israeli Jewish, not just, you know, from Brooklyn or something, but they were, you know, they were from a different part of the world. And um, talking with them, it's, I just, it, it shrank my significance tremendously. And, you know, I needed that, I think. I needed to have that shrunk. It was a good move. That was an uh-oh moment for you. Yeah. It was an uh-oh moment, uh, which becomes an aha moment. Yes. It was like, ah, okay, I get it. I need, I need to move past. I need to trust God. It, it isn't like, okay, I have, this, I have this intellectual problem that was caused by the fact that I'm having lunch with a Jewish classmate, and he sees the world differently than I do, and it's sort of blowing me away. So quickly, I have to fix that. I have to get a new intellectual category. I have to sort of make this work quickly so I can relieve myself of this stress, because if there's anything, God does not want us to feel stressed. Yeah, he yeah. wants us to feel very comfortable, right? But the thing is, no, it's actually it's letting go of that need to fix it intellectually and say, I don't know how the universe works. I'm just going to try to follow Jesus as best as I can, you know, and I'm not going to claim to have, you know, omniscient knowledge about everything. And we count our time while we're feeling so sane. 
With the cannonball head and a paperback heart Will you see where you've been when you get to the start? Yeah, and it, and it seems to go back to what you were saying earlier in, in terms of uh, this this sense of ego that we have where we, we try to shove God into this tiny little box that we've created. And then God says, no, no, you know, I'm, I'm, yeah. far, I'm far too big for that little box, you know. Right. Which is, see, this, I, I, and this is the thing, because, you know, my, my, my whole deal is biblical scholarship and studying the Bible. It's actually reading the Bible, not even all that carefully, but just paying attention that sort of exposed already that that the fact that God won't be put into a box because there's too much theological diversity in the Bible. There, there are too many different angles that authors take in talking about God, and those angles change over time based on the experience. I'm talking about the Old Testament now. Based on the experiences the people are actually having, they think about God differently. And if there is not a lesson in there someplace, I don't know where you'll ever find one. You know, um, you can't just take the parts of the Bible, make them all magically fit together as if they're all saying the same thing. They are absolutely not saying the same thing. We're watching a conversation take place in the Bible that's rooted in a deep trust in God, even when things look like there's no reason to, and they keep moving anyway. And to me, that is just a—that's a beautiful thing. That's a beautiful book right there. That That's is a yeah. beautiful book. Yeah, it's not an answer book. It's a come on in book. <laughs> you know, yeah. The water's fine. Ah, we lied. It's not fine. The water's sort of rough. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, but you know, you need you need to navigate these waters. You need sometimes it's calm, sometimes it's rough, sometimes it's sunny, sometimes it's dark. That's the life of faith. Yeah one of one of my um, one of my sort of places of skepticism that. Um, you know, I have to be careful and not let my my skepticism or my cynicism, you know, embitter my heart against, you know, brothers right. and sisters that are, you know, around me. But one of them is what you're saying sounds so beautifully real, as mysterious as life itself, as mysterious as the fact that, you know, I'm a mystery to myself. You know, my friend John is a mystery to me. My wife is a mystery to me. Tomorrow is a mystery to me. And the way you're looking at the Bible sounds as real as life itself. And that's why I'm attracted to that uncertainty at this point in my life. However, this is where my skepticism and cynicism comes in a little bit. And it's that doesn't sell very well, does it? I mean, as a, as a product and a lot of American Christianity has become a product. How do you sell a Bible study at Lifeway books or Berean Christian bookstores or whatever up talking about that? It seems to me like so much of this over certitude and this very, um, rigid post enlightenment scientific formulaic approach to scripture has come because it's easier to sell. It's, you know, you simplify it, you dumb it down, you make it black and white, you give people a couple of study questions, and voila, they're an expert. Yeah, exactly. And um, it's it's not just that it's easier, although it definitely is, it's also part of the narrative of the culture of American Christianity, and let's say Western Christianity, for the past couple hundred years. And it's deeply woven into the fabric of like our self-identity as Christians. It means, listen, point number one, the Bible's clear, right? And we know how it works, and we know how God works, so let's just sort of apply this, and, you know, there's no complexity here. Right. Um, one of my professors, uh, John Levinson, who I 
I sort of quote him probably somewhat inaccurately, but the gist of what he said once that really moved me, he said this in a class, and he's written it someplace too, that for Jews, the Bible is like a problem that you get to enter and try to solve. For Christians, the Bible is a message to be proclaimed. If it's a message, you can't have diversity. Uh. You can't have conflicting theologies. It has to be unified. And that is sort of, I think, a very unhealthy and unrealistic view of the Bible. So, but if you have that view, then you can do those kinds of Bible studies you're talking about. That is, well, it's obviously the whole point of this is to be clear. Uh, Isn't it? Yeah. God would never want to confuse us. So I think it's, it's deeper than just simply it's easier. It's deeply woven into our, our understanding of the nature of God. You're right. And the nature of life and the nature of the Bible, the nature of Christian theology. You know, you don't have various theories of atonement in the Bible for, in this kind of mindset. <laughs> right. Yeah. There's one. And right. it's, it's, it's penal substitutionary, and that's all you have. That's it, right? And so, I, you know, I, I think there's, it's a big problem. And, and how do you sort of – how do you sell it to them? And my simple answer, guys, is that I don't. Mm. I can't. I'm not even going to try. But when they're ready to talk about some of this stuff, I want people to know that there is a model out there that many, many, many people have. I'm just – I'm just sort of a drop in that bucket. There are a lot of people talking about this kind of stuff in this way, and through history, right? That's another thing. Evangelicalism and fundamentalism is not normal Christianity. I don't know if there is a normal, but, you know, Augustine wasn't a fundamentalist. John Calvin wasn't a fundamentalist or an evangelical. Uh, Martin Luther wasn't. You know, Thomas Aquinas, just go back in church history. The way we think is not normal, Right. Right. So when people sort of see the bigger breadth of the Christian faith, when they have their own crises, their own uh, own moments, thankfully for the Internet, they can access things pretty quickly. And they yeah. can generate some communities and some dialogues where they can see that, you know, this isn't working, but I don't think it's any good anyway, <laughs> you know, and, and there's something else out there. So I sort of like, I don't like try to sell it to people I mean, I do try to make an argument for it, but I'm, I have more people in mind who have left the faith for reasons that probably weren't good ones at the end of the day. Yeah. Because it was rooted in a fundamentalist understanding of the Bible and Christianity. I mean, if I have a choice to be a fundamentalist or an atheist, I'm an atheist. Right. If those are my two choices, fundamentalism makes no sense. It's intellectually, it's bankrupt. Right? That's now, so good, yeah, man. to me, too. But, you know, so. Yeah, I'm with you. So I, I think, I think this is a good spot to lead into, um, there's a part of your book that I, that, you know, that you, you kind of approach the idea of this modern version of Christianity specifically in, in Western society. And, and you, you took a survey, which I thought was really interesting of the list of the five common issues that, that people have with Christianity. And, and I think, um, a lot of the people who listen to our show probably identify with that list, um, in, in a big way for as in terms of reasons why they just, for one reason or another, either cannot accept Christianity uh, or, you know, have, have just stopped going to church. And we receive emails and things of this nature all the time asking these very questions. So um, I was hoping you talk about that a little bit and how, how do we begin to engage people um, in regards to those questions, like the question of, of violence that reoccurs in, in an angry, vengeful God that occurs throughout the Old Testament and, and making sense of this complex ancient document in a way that is inviting to people. And, and that's, 
that's the question, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> you know, how do you do that? But I think it begins by just an honest acknowledgement of what the, you see the problems are and realizing that, yeah, people have noticed this. You're not the first one. <laughs> yeah. And they've noticed this for a very, very, very long Not some things they haven't, because, you know, one of the, the survey I did on my, on my um, website, I, I asked, you know, what are the two or three things that make it difficult for you to stay Christian? And I sort of collated those in five and five issues, and one of them was science and the Bible. That's that's relatively new, right? Yeah, especially evolution. I mean, you know, Galileo. That was one thing. You know, gosh, the Earth's not the center of the cosmos. No, and that was a hard thing to swallow. <laughs> I think it's more difficult today. The more we learn, the more we understand. So that's you know, people. Those those are more modern, but most of these others are like you know, where is God when you need him? You know, yeah. God's absent. I mean, that's, that goes back to the Bible. You know, that's Old Testament language. That's lament psalms and things like that. So just to sort of normalize their experience and not say, you're, oh, my goodness gracious, I'm landing on something that is just shatters the whole faith. And I sort of want to say, you naive, simple person, you. Uh-huh. <laughs> you People yeah. have known this and thought this is part of the conversation of faith. This is not the attack on faith to acknowledge these things. Now, having mm-hmm. said that, yeah, it's, these things are problems. No, no question. I'm not minimizing the, the challenging nature of it. I'm only sort of trying to normalize it as this is what people of faith think about. Mm. Wow. Man, that's good. A, a, a side note, it, 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 it's interesting, I think, especially with what we're dealing with in today's, today's political climate and, and just in society and uh, just society as a whole, just being very afraid, uh, you know, we're afraid of the other, we're afraid of anyone who doesn't think like us, look like us, dress like us. And, and we look at the old Testament, we really dig in and we see examples of just crazy things happening, you know, God smiting entire towns. And yet the same people are the first ones to point out, well, the Quran has all these awful things in it that say, you know, you know, you, you should stone these people for, for this reason or this, that, and the other. And yet, we kind of ignore some of this ancient history that occurs, you know, throughout, throughout the Bible, you know? Right. Right. Yeah. And violence, you know, divine violence, either violence that God sanctions or God ignores or God out and out just commits. That is probably the number one issue that in my, in my discussions with people, that's, that's the thing they, they want to look at pretty quickly. I, um, I, I'm not really a member of a church right now, and I don't care if people don't like that or not, but I just can't deal with it. But I have been going to an Episcopal church for about six years now, and pretty active there. And um, I sometimes speak in, like, the Episcopal circuit near me, and Episcopalians, as you all know, don't read the Bible. They do liturgy, you know, so when I go to teach there and I say, take out your Bibles, they say, what are you talking about? I say, well, don't you have any Bibles around here? And they're like, yeah, I think they're in the closet someplace. We can't find them. So they don't really read the they don't really read the Bible, but there's one parish near us. Um, they went through a read to the Bible. Listen to this in 90 days, what? Which is a program they got from Zondervan. Yeah, which which makes perfect sense because this is this is very much an evangelical thing to do. But they wanted to read through the Bible in 90 days, and it's amazing. And within the first week, the rector is emailing me saying, "Yeah, can you come to our?" church and talk to people, because people are dropping like flies in the Bible, and we don't know what to do. Right? <laughs> so, that, see, that's the thing, when you, you get to chapter 6 of the Bible, and everybody drowns. 
Yeah. Yeah. God's had it already. In six chapters, he said, I'm done. <laughs> you know, it's just, I mean, what do you do with that if you're trying to read this for spiritual sustenance? And I say, that's a good question. Welcome to the club. Yeah. Welcome to that discussion. Absolutely. What do you do? Yes. You know, um, but, you know, I think you know, it's, it's hard to know, really. You know, a, a violence can be, I think, sort of even metaphorical in the Bible. You know, I mean, I don't believe that God did these violent things that the biblical writers talked about. It's not because I don't believe in the Bible, because in studying it, I've come to that conclusion that these are much later reflections and ways of thinking about God that make sense culturally. Right. Right. When you're living in a tribal society and you're the Israelites and you're coming on the scene very late, right? You have other peoples who have been there long before you, like Assyrians and Babylonians and Egyptians, and then you hang out with Moabites and Ammonites and Edomites and Phoenicians. Everybody's got their gods. And the gods are always brought into politics, which means taking your land. And if your God is a good God and a strong God, and if you're a good people and you worship this God correctly, you're going to win. And if you lose, you must have done something to hack God off. God's yeah. not happy with That's not just, that is That is very much how the Bible works generally in the Old Testament, not all the time, but with the narratives, you know, of the kings and of conquests and things like that. And that is, that's part of the ancient world. But you see, you see movement even within the pages of the Old Testament, away from that kind of insider-outsider, we need to kill people different from us and take their land mentality. You see movement, you see thought being put into that. And that's one thing that I would want to sort of talk with people about. Look at sort of the trajectory that we see in the Old Testament. You know, look at this trajectory, and that's, that's a helpful thing to look at. Um, but this is what happens, you know, when, when ancient people write a book about God. It's going to reflect those cultural moments. Man. Yeah. Yeah, we so... It's just hard, it's hard to escape it. You know? we, we so often forget that. And with our sim- simplified sort of American, you know, 1900 and beyond view of Scripture, um, you know, that's this divine book with, you know, no errors, no problems, you know, it, it's tough to... It's tough to remind people of the divine and human parts of the body. We just forget that, you know? And, and we forget it to our own peril, because then we assign things to God that maybe we shouldn't be doing, mm. right? Um, so, you know, I think, you know, violence is, is an, a ready and willing, even theological device in the Old Testament because of the tribal... It's Iron Age tribalism. This is where we are in the world, you know. Um, for, you know, end of the second millennium, most of the first millennium, we're in what's called the Iron Age, and and tribalism and territorialism, and that's just the way it is, and you see God through those lenses. Um, but I think even some of the stories of violence are not so much there to say, hey, isn't violence great? Let's be violent but I think it might be trying to say something else. I mean, an analogy might be something like the Lord of the Rings, and maybe think <laughs> of movies where, you know, you've got, you know, the hobbits fighting against the orcs, you know, or, you know, the riders of Rohan who are coming and sweeping down on the horses and, and slaughtering orcs and piling up their bodies and burning them. You know, when I watch those scenes, I don't think to myself, where's my sword? I have to find my enemy and slay them. I look at those stories and I say, 
it just the violence is a vehicle for t- doing something else about whether it's honor or courage or you know fidelity and trustworthiness and you know just just plain old bravery in difficult situations there there's the violence is not the point the violence is the vehicle and i wonder if something like that sometimes is going on in the old testament as well mm. the violence not the point the violence is the vehicle because there is plenty of critique in the old testament maybe not as much as i'd like to see but it's there of of critique against simply assuming the other needs to die yeah you know um and even right there in, you know, the story of, in the book of Joshua, the story of Rahab, the prostitute, who's saved because she sort of submits to the God of Israel, whereas the Israelite Achan and his family, they die like outsiders because they're not obedient to God. Right. You know, it's, 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 it's not need, there's a dialogue going on in the Old Testament about violence. But the thing is that it takes time to look at that. You know, you can't just sort of like tweet that or do it in, you know, <laughs> a half an hour Bible study or something or, or a Sunday school lesson right after, after church. It's, it takes time to really live with that stuff, you know, and, and to think through it. And, and, you know, most people don't really have the time for that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's almost like uh, instead of more Bible studies, we need more struggling with Scripture groups. You know what? That's a great way of putting it. Um, I, you know, I, I, I've in other contexts, I've put it this way. I said, what we need is theological mass re-education about what the Bible is, yes, and what it means to read it, and what it means to use it, and it's okay to argue with it. Which is, you know, I, I talk about this in pretty much anything I ever write about the Bible. But you know, the historically speaking, the Jewish experience has been much more open to things like debate with each other is a means of communing with God. Mm. Coming up with the final answer is not the point, which is why you have in, in you know, the, one of the sacred writings of Judaism, the Talmud, which is, you know, this, this ongoing commentary on the nature of Jewish faith in, uh, you know, in, in for the past, you know, 1500 years. Um, the Talmud, it just records, you know, these differences of opinion on the part of learned rabbis over history. Yeah. But there's no, attempt, there's no attempt to sort of normalize it all and come up with the one answer, right? Well, yeah. don't they want to get it right? No, it's actually in that community that you're actually working out what it means to be Jewish and to live a life in God's presence, right? And I think Christians can learn something about that, um, about themselves and about the Bible, maybe from looking at it. Judaism is sort of like, uh, um, you know, a way of approaching how we look at the Bible. Because, you know, for for at least conservative Christians, for Protestants, you know, especially, and maybe evangelicals and fundamentalists, every possible problem you can come down to, that that comes up, every possible problem that comes up, eventually comes down to the Bible. What does the Bible say, and what do we do with what it says? Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's... That's what we hear pretty much all the time. <laughs> yep. It's a, it's a big, big and freaking why, problem. You know, I, I wrote that book, The Bible Tells Me So, which, of course, is a riff on, you know, the, 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 maybe the more common mentality that, you know, well, the Bible tells me so, I'm going to believe it. Yeah. Well, you know what the Bible tells you? The Bible tells you there's diversity of thought. The yep. Bible tells you there are all sorts of historical inaccuracies. Just read it. The Bible tells you writers disagree with each other. That's what the Bible's telling you. If you just look at it, you know, mm. without trying to impose something over it, 
Mm. That is so good, man. You know, I just dropped my mic, man. I just dropped. You my just mic. totally <laughs> dropped your mic. I mean, I probably I shouldn't. I'm, I'm walking even... away now. You know, you can't see it, but I dropped it. I'm walking away. It's a, sh- it's a shame this is audio only. You know, if this I is know. a video podcast, I love it. It's so much fun. It's so much fun. Um, one of the questions that we get all the time, and it's it's an important question, and I think you're so qualified to riff on it a little bit, is um, kids. You know, a lot of us are parents. A lot of us are parents. And you mentioned towards the end of your book uh, in your chapter, Beyond Trust, you know, that you're a father and that looking at the future is, is something that can cause a lot of, you know, dismay, a lot of stress. You know, what are, what are we doing here? And, and you talk about how it seems like all we're doing is protecting the past, that that's what, right. you know, passing faith down to children has come down to and instead of uh, what you call, um, you know, protecting the future. Could you talk a little bit about what you mean by that? And, you know, when you've gone through this kind of, you know, we call it a deconstruction, you call it, you know, an uh-oh into an aha or, you know, whatever you want to call it, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. What do you do with, you know, your kids, man? Like, what do we do? Right. I, I think you've got some great thoughts on that. And I'd love to, to have our listeners hear that. Yeah, I have, I have great thoughts. They're all too late for my kids who are 29, 26, and 23. <laughs> sorry, but, sorry, guys. Sorry, sorry, guys. I screwed you up, but you'll be fine. You'll be fine. Don't worry about it. Um, yeah, so I, I, yeah, I, I mean, I do have some thoughts about that, but I, I sometimes wonder how qualified I am to talk about it. I, children are all different. Families are all different. But I think, if anything... To first of all, I mean, I, others have said, and again, I think I, I think I just read something in Roar who said something similar. But um, children do like the concrete, and it's okay to tell them the stories of the Bible and not feel like you have to comment on them because kids just sort of like the concreteness of the stories. But eventually, they'll have questions, right? Like um, when my son was six, and I was reading the Garden of Eden story to him, and just happened to be there. And, you know, chapter three, where the serpent tempts Eve, and my son was losing patience with me, like he wouldn't believe, he's just sighing, so, Dad, come on, it's there. <laughs> he said, Dad, snakes can't talk, right? And he's six. And because, you know, what do you say in a situation like that? Well, you don't say, yes, they can, because the Bible said. You say, yeah, I think you're actually right. Snakes don't talk, but the Bible knows that. So what's going on here? This is a story meant to convey something, right? Wow. Because kids, kids have a sensitivity toward it. Kids are not stupid. They, 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 um, they have a capacity, I think, for understanding what's, I don't know, is, is myth the right word? But I don't want to sidetrack the discussion by talking about myth, but they <laughs> have profoundly metaphorical <laughs> meanings, and that's the real meaning. It's not the literal action meaning. It's something beneath that. Because if you say, well, animals do talk, well, so do, the, so do Disney cartoons. Animals talk there, too. So is this any different from that, right? So to, to encourage, I think, and to set up a culture in the home where questioning these things is actually not just allowed and tolerated, but expected and valued as a means of spiritual growth. Man, that's good. But you, ha- you can't force that on kids. I think it just has to come. You know, it, it just it just has to come that you allow them to sort of get to that point where they're going to feel free to talk about things and be honest and not have it equated with rebellion 
against God. You know, when my son, when my son said that, you know, I was teaching seminary, a fairly young seminary professor. He was six, and he said, "Animals can't talk." And my reaction was to say, "I didn't do this." My reaction was to say, "Shh, Eric, stop. He may hear you." <laughs> you don't want right. you don't want to hack you don't want to hack God off by saying that, but you know, sort of engage them in conversation about um, about what they're seeing. And, and sort of letting those things develop, or, you know, my daughter, when she was 10 or 11, and I mentioned her in, in the book at some length, because there's, a, you know, a whole story with her. Um, but, uh, you know, she said, you know, Dad, I don't understand why God would kill all those Egyptians in the Red Sea. Yeah. Aren't they, aren't they God's children, too? Wow. You know, and I'm like, don't talk to me. I'm busy. <laughs> How do you handle it? But the thing is that to, to the thing is that, and I get this because parents are afraid of screwing up their kids. Yeah. So what they do is they build a a high thick wall around them and insulate them from dangerous ideas that are at least perceived to be dangerous, such as questioning what the Bible says or wondering whether God really exists or wondering what happens to people who you know, who aren't Christians, but believe in some sort of God, what happens to them? You know, we want to insulate them from those, um, from those moments. And that works until it, it works no further than college. Yeah. Then that, that's gone, you know, and, and statistically we know, you know, the most important times in a children's life is spiritually up to 15. And then from 15 to 30, you don't recognize them anymore. <laughs> yeah. you know, they're just like, they're, they're, not, they're not the way they were raised. And I think a lot of that is because children are raised to simply toe the party line and not to question. And that's especially true in conservative iterations of the church in at least Western culture that I'm aware of. You know, a good Christian doesn't ask questions. You do the right thing. You're a good citizen. Don't think about it. Don't question it. Don't argue. You can bring up a kind of an interesting insight in a Bible study, but it has to support the system, not go against the system. And once they leave that system, once they go to college, they're free. They can do what they want, and they do. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, you know, so, so how, how can, here's the question, right? And I don't have a firm answer to this, but how do you combine a warm respect and love for a tradition that is fundamentally very ancient and has had a solid core, <laughs> you know, let's say th- throughout history. How do you maintain a respect for that while at the same time creating these cultures of conversation and of freedom and of simply spiritual and intellectual honesty with yourself being able to trust others around you that you can do that, which means sometimes just finding a good church, you know, and also more importantly, thinking that God is valuing your baby steps and, 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 and loves the question, right? Like good parents love it when their kids challenge them, right? Absolutely. <laughs> Look at them. They're thinking for themselves. Isn't that wonderful? You know, and, and, Sort of, but that's a different mindset, and I know this because, like I said, I've raised kids, and I understand the fear that parents have of like, I just want them to turn out to be good Christians. Well, yeah. maybe God wants them to be followers of God, and that's not the same thing, right? Our, our, our versions of Christianity are very much uncultured, and it's it's you do something on Sunday, you do it twice. If you're really good in the morning and the evening, usually Wednesdays, 
And there are certain procedures that you do so that you'll be safely within the system, right? And systems have value, but they can also be terribly detrimental if they become the be-all and end-all, rather than saying, okay, listen, kid, I'm glad you were part of this system. It's very clear to us that you need to leave. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to anoint you for your journey. We don't, we don't know where you're going. We don't know where you're going. We love you. We respect what you're doing. We, we, we care about you always. And we will physically pour oil on your head because that's what anointing is. It, it prepares you for this unknown, difficult journey that we're all on, right? And, and, and so they leave with a sense of acceptance and belonging so they can't hate their church Man. or their families, you know? But how do you do that? I, I don't know. You just do it, I guess. <laughs> you know, but it's hard to do that alone. You need a community to support you. And the problem is that the people who have this problem that we're talking about tend to be in churches that don't support. Oh, good. My alarm's going off. Um, <laughs> I have to take my medicine. Yeah, they tend to be in churches. <laughs> I have to take my, my, my happy medicine. Um, they, you know, they tend to be in churches that cause the problem right? More than a support to fix it. Mm. You know what I mean? It's, it's sort of, it's, it's a vicious cycle because the parents that care most about having their kids turn out right are in churches that insist that you toe the line. That's what it means to turn out right. Right. So h- how do you work on that? And sometimes that means finding alternate church communities, which are springing up all over the place. You know, I mean, I, I speak in these churches. They're, they're not denominational. They're more of a community. They're just, they don't have doctrinal statements. You know, they believe in Jesus, they follow, they're not stupid, but they're, they're not focusing on that. They're focusing on the life of the community and just being human, Man. you know, as we're, to, as we're trying to follow God. That's, to me, that's, that's exciting. I want that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> I'll take, we'll take, know, we'll take two. We'll take two. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. I, I don't think there's any better way to, to, to end this, uh, this, uh, this episode uh, but before we let you go, um, I yeah. have a feeling there's going to be a few people out there who really want to get their hands on the sin of certainty, uh, why God desires our trust more than our correct beliefs. Uh, where where can people find that book? And also, what's the easiest way for, for people to keep up on what you're up to? Well, I mean, both you can sort of do through my website, which is PeteEnds.com. And uh, the name of the website, I mean, it takes you to the same place, is uh, The Bible for Normal People which is what I try to do. I try to talk about the Bible in ways that respects and honors the questions people bring, but to engage that from, you know, the background of my academic training and all that kind of stuff. So um, I, don't think, I don't think academic thinking about the Bible should stay in the academic world. I think it should be something that people talk about all the time. So that's what I try to do there. And um, I have a blog. You know, I, I try to put something up about three times a week. Um, and I have a whole section for my books so people can click on the books and read a little bit about what the book's about and they can purchase them through the website. Um, so yeah, that's, that's the place to go. Excellent. And, you know, they can sign up for, I have a newsletter. They can sign up for my newsletter. They can follow me on Twitter and, uh, you know, Facebook, which God wants. I think God wants them to follow me on Twitter because God's all about Twitter and Facebook. Absolutely. That's at least. He has, yeah, just, he has we, his own account. Yeah, we just account heard there. that. We yeah. just heard that same word. <laughs> yeah. We just heard that same word. And actually, I don't know too. There's there's another thing, guys. I wanted to mention. 
Um, I'm not sure when this is going to air, but in February, March of 2017, um, I'll be launching uh, a podcast of my own. Fantastic. Oh, to talk about things. And I think, you know, I'll probably put an episode up every couple of weeks. I don't want to inundate the world, but, um, you know, I figure there are so few podcasts out there. I want to get in on the ground floor. <laughs> There's Absolutely really not. not it's, it's a very underground thing right now. Yeah. <laughs> I, know, I think there are like 10 or 20 podcasts yeah. in total or something. Yeah. So, and have them Christian. So I think I'm just going to just blow this apart. No, I, I've, <laughs> I've been um, thinking about this for two or three years and people, you know, they asked me, why don't you have a podcast? I'm like, I don't know, because I don't know how to do one. That's why uh, neither do we. <laughs> don't ask <laughs> us. <laughs> so, but I have um, a, a, a good friend and collaborator. His name is Jared Bias. Um, he was my co-author on Genesis for Normal People, which came out like in 2012. And uh, we've been sort of partnering on some projects. And we're going to be – he's the sort of the technology side, but he and I together – um, are going to be sort of interviewing people, and basically the topic's going to be so. What do you think of the Bible? You know, oh, and, and uh, we've we've already recorded some uh, some interviews about like historicity, like you know what happened in the Old Testament, oh. or you know who is Jesus comparing the Gospels? Because those are questions that people who read the Bible these are normal things that come up. Oh, that oh, sounds I, amazing! I can't wait to. Can I subscribe now, even though it's not out yet? <laughs> yeah, well, I'm going to try to put you guys out of business. That's my whole goal. This, I this hope you about, do. Hey, we could use more free time. Me. <laughs> I, I hope you do, man. Yeah, that sounds. I'm going to control the internet. I'm going to. That's my goal to control the internet. <laughs> I, uh, I I love I'll, it. I'll, then I'll write a book about how Pete Enns ruined my life and why I still love him. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Why well, still, well, still listen to his podcast? <laughs> well, well, this is this is going up. That's perfect time. This is probably going to go up probably around um, early early March. So we will absolutely promote oh, it in any way we any way that we can. We can't wait to hear it. Man, yeah, I would appreciate. This it. was Great. so much fun. I feel like we could have done this for another two hours. Well, let's do it sometime again. I'd, I'd love to. It's Absolutely. That'd be great. Absolutely, man. Thank you so much for just all the time. And, uh, you know, thank you so much for your, just, your, your heart for people, man. It just really comes through that you're not somebody that's just pushing an agenda, you know, because you want to, you know, backlash against the establishment. You just don't get that vibe from you at all. You just, you just love people, and I appreciate that so much. So thank you for your heart. No, I appreciate that. Thank, thanks, thanks for I just. You know what I just did? I'm going to tell you people what I've been doing here while we're talking. <laughs> um, I'm not embarrassed at all. I have a baseball bat in my hand and I swing it. What, That's what? what I'm doing in my study, and I just dropped it. I'm sorry, but um, yeah, that, hard for people. Yeah, I got it. Okay, that is awesome. <laughs> no, I, I appreciate that because you know, this. The older I get, too, you know, I I can't say I was exactly like this in my 30s. You know, but, you know, I'm in my mid-50s, approaching late-50s, and um, I just, I, it just becomes clearer and clearer to me, this is about human beings and mm. people and their experiences and their feelings, and it's not about me controlling the world with my mind. I've tried that. It doesn't work. You know, and, and so it's, it's sort of like, I'd love to say, yeah, I'm just this naturally beautiful human being. <laughs> <laughs> I've learned this stuff. I've had to learn it, you know, and, and I'm glad. You know, and, and, and some of that learning, it has come through these uh-oh moments, too. You know, so, but I appreciate what you said. Yeah, no worries, man. This is where we all have a, a group hug over Skype right now. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Group hug. <laughs> well, let me put my bat down. Okay, that's good. I'm right now. There okay. we go. All right, good. That was fun. <laughs> thanks. I felt the warmth. All right, guys. Yeah. <laughs> all right, thanks, Pete. We'll do this again real soon. Yeah, thank you so good much. Good 
to be with you. See ya. Yeah, see ya. I'm so happy. <laughs> I'm so happy we got this guy to kick off our year. This is, uh, again, we mentioned that he uh, was referred to us by quite a number of people, not just listeners, but other guests that we had on the show. And mm-hmm. like like you said, having to sit on this for the last like several months, uh, but at the same time, knowing that this is going to lead off our, uh, our 2017, um, I couldn't wait to get this one out, man. Yeah, dude, it was like, uh, you could look at it as kind of torture or <laughs> delayed gratification. It might, yeah, might've been delayed gratification. It was either way. This was some juice that we put in the cellar and aged it a little bit just so it tasted a little extra good for all the people that have been waiting so long to hear this guy talk some, some stuff that's so pertinent to the things we cover on this podcast. So good, man. He's just so knowledgeable and wise and well-read and he's just He's not trying to throw the baby out with the bathwater. He's trying to be honest and continue to engage the text that is in somehow a big deal in a lot of people's lives still, yeah. even if you're listening to this podcast and you're going through some stuff. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, yeah, I just, you know, like I said before, I, I just really appreciate, um, you know, a an expert, if you will, you know, if there is such a thing or, or a, a, a better term, I guess, would be biblical scholar, you know, someone who is, who is invested, you know, hours and hours and days and weeks and months and years of his, of his career, really just digging into the material and, and doing Mm -hmm. it justice. I mean, there's, this is not, this is not like fly by night, sloppy scholarship. This is well read, well researched, well thought out scholarship. And uh, I'm really glad you, you brought that up because I think that there is for, for anybody listening to this, you know, you've probably come from a little bit more of a rigid background in one way or another. And I think that there's a mischaracterization of anyone that isn't staunch literalist, that they're just wishy-washy and it's not good scholarship. And it's just, uh, you know, you're just making it say whatever you want it to say. Right. And that just, that just could not be further from the truth, especially with, with Dr. Enns. I mean, Wow, does he put he he goes back to get as close to what it actually may have meant and then uses the tools of interpretation to bring it here so we can wrestle with it. Yes. And then, you know, just everything he was talking about for you know, the whole idea of certainty. I mean, I gotta listen to this again because it's just this takes a long time to detox from. When, whether it was explicit or not, I think the implicit narrative of modern or postmodern, whatever you want to call it, Christianity, is that you need to be absolutely freaking sure about everything. Right. Yeah. Which is impossible, (laughs) you know? Uh, Completely impossible. And it just encourages all this repression, which then encourages all this acting out elsewhere. And now we're, you know, back to psychoanalysis and all that stuff, but it, it's not good. It's not a good thing. Yeah. It's not healthy. It, it serves one purpose and that's to feed your ego, you know? Yeah. 
or, or control a large group of people. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, yeah, I just, I thoroughly enjoyed that. I, I just, I remember, I remember reading that book and, and thinking to myself, like this guy is just hitting the nail on the head in terms of, of, um, the journey that you and I have been on, you know, that created this podcast in general. And I think we'll speak to a lot of the people who, you know, listen to our show and are, you know, really struggling and wrestling, uh, with a lot of things. I think this, this, uh, this book will be very, very helpful. So helpful. You know, everything by ends is helpful. Read every, if you're struggling, wrestling, reconstructing, deconstructing, and trying to in some way, shape or form remain something around Jesus, uh, read everything Peter ends has written. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Did, did you have anything else to say about him before we get into, uh, who the musical guest is this week? No. Who is this again? Oh man. So the band this week, I was actually kind of excited about because, you know, uh, for those of, those of us who are, uh, you know, in our thirties at this point, uh, maybe late, <laughs> late twenties. Uh, this is a band that, uh, they, they were one of these bands that were, they were around, you know, a little over 10 years ago and they were starting to blow up. And then my understanding, and I could have this wrong, uh, super fans could correct me. Uh, but I believe the lead singer, uh, decided to just stop making music to get married and settle down. And then I know one of the guitar players from this band, ended up joining Anne Berlin, uh, the band Anne Berlin for a while. And then, you know, those of you who are Anne Berlin fans, they, they recently quit making music. And so his original band, the band that we are, uh, featuring on the podcast this week, acceptance, uh, got back together and just put out a new album and it's, uh, really good. And so the songs that you've heard on the episode tonight or today, whenever you're listening to it, um, are, are new, new tracks off that new album uh, that is available everywhere. Uh, so hope you guys like that. And again, as always, um, feel, you know, get on social media, let them know that, that uh, we sent you. Um, helps us get other bands, and uh, we've got some really cool uh, musical artists coming up for the next year as well that we're super excited to, to uh, introduce to you if you've uh, never heard of them before. So. Oh yeah, we've got some good musical artists that we're going to feature on the show. Um, almost a hundred percent thanks to John. He does all the work on that. He's always, oh man, you are like a, you're like a, you're like one of the tr- like uh, the dwarfs in Lord of the Rings that like, <laughs> mines so deep into the earth that you find jewels that nobody's ever even heard of. Man, I was, and, uh, <laughs> yeah. and you bring them and you bring them out, and we're all like, "What is that?" And you're like, "Just trust me on this." <laughs> Well, and the funny thing is, like, I, 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 I love doing that. I, I just love digging for new new bands and stuff. And so, like, I email to get permission to use our music, of course. And then Adam, like, and I share this email inbox, of course. And uh, so Adam just sees these emails coming in. We're like, yeah, you can use the music. And he's like, who the heck are these people? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like this. I'm like I'm like John. You're like you've just, you're magical, man. You just throw magic <laughs> all over the place with hey, this stuff. So I, this is, this is awesome. And we're going to have a bunch more, but, uh, it yeah. always fits perfectly with our guests. And, uh, yeah, this is great, man. It's, it's good to be back. This was a great first episode and I'm really excited uh, for the rest of season one of 2017. Yeah. And don't forget next week, uh, we're doing every other week for a while here. So next week we'll be off again. So you'll have a chance to catch up and, and, uh, 
you know, get through all the, the new stuff. And then we'll be back the following week with another new episode that we can't wait to share with you, but we can't tell you about mm. it quite yet. <laughs> oh, this is going to be a, a mind melter and, uh, be... and, a, and, a, and a soul restorer. Can you tell them the theme? What's, uh, what's the theme for that one, Adam? Resurrection. Oh, yeah. That's, that's the taste we'll give you. <laughs> mm, so good. All right, man. Any, anything so much else fun, on your man. end? No, it's, uh, it's nice to be with you on the interwebs. Absolutely, man. It's good to be back. It feels <laughs> good. <laughs> and, and it's good to be with you all, listeners. Uh, anybody listening to the show, thank you for the, for the love, the critiques, the support, the, the engagement, the, the sharing of your stories. And um, if we haven't responded to you on email and you've sent something out, it's just been a little crazy for John and I work-wise and family-wise, but we're trying to get to those. And uh, we just love doing this with you guys. And we're, we appreciate you more than you know. Absolutely. And with that, we are your hosts. I'm Adam Narlock. And I'm John Williamson. Grace and peace, guys.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.